Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to one of the authors of Enchanted America, How Intuition and Reason Divide Our Politics. The book is published by University of Chicago Press this year, and the two authors are J. J. Eric Oliver and Thomas J. Wood. I have the pleasure to have Eric on the, the line right now. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Heath. Thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to have read the, um, your super interesting book. Uh, which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, before we get to it, why don't you just introduce yourself briefly and also your co-author? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. Um, Tom is an assistant professor of political science at the Ohio State University. Uh, uh, wonderful. And, and what, what brought this collaboration together? Are you two long-term collaborators or is this a new... Is this a new sure. Uh, Tom was a graduate student of mine here at the University of Chicago. Um, and what prompted my interest in the book was when I was a graduate student at Berkeley in the mid-90s, uh, I met a fellow on the street on Telegraph Avenue who was handing out handwritten conspiracy theories. And I was very intrigued by both that he was taking the time to do this and this as a way of, under, of representing how he was understanding the political world that didn't seem to be captured in many of our kind of standard political science models. Um, I was working on other projects at the time, so I kind of sequestered that away. And then about 10 years ago, I had some room on a survey. And so I put on some conspiracy theory questions and I was just curious what the percentages of Americans who would be believing in conspiracy theories were. So I put on like six kind of standard conspiracy theory questions. And when the numbers came back, I was really floored because it ended up being that about one in two Americans endorsed at least one of sort of six major conspiracy theories. And these ranged from like, say, the you know, 9-11 truther conspiracy theory to things like that, you know, vapor trails from jets were a, a plan of secret government spraying of the population. And so Tom was a graduate student at that time, and we started analyzing the data. And one of the things that came out was one of the biggest predictors of whether or not people believed in conspiracy theories was whether or not they had a lot of supernatural or paranormal beliefs. Um, and we were intrigued by this. And so we started reading into the literatures on magical thinking. Uh, and most of this came from psychology and anthropology. And what became apparent to us is that magical thinking represented a more kind of intuitive way of making sense of reality. Um, that magical beliefs tended to serve emotional functions and rely heavily upon innate heuristics, these mental shortcuts that we use for making inferences when we have uh, little information. Um, and that began to then suggest to us that maybe there was something going on to the conspiracy theorist that also might, excuse me, account for a lot of other political phenomena that seem to be related to conspiracy theories. So for example, such as populism or belief in alternative medicines um, or certain the power of certain kinds of political symbols and metaphors and why they resonated. 
So our project basically started in this idea of trying to explore the role of magical thinking in politics, but really to explore the power of intuition and in the intuitive sources of political understanding. So before we sort of uh, go any further, let's let's start at the start, uh, which is is that your book is, is uh, largely about emotions and, and how emotions uh, are related to how we form political opinions of various forms. Uh, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about why we might things think emotions come first. Uh, that is why why emotions, thought of in, in the ways that you do, come before our beliefs and before our ideology, not not the other way around. So what if you could kind of lay out, lay out how you guys are thinking about this? Sure. So imagine that the world is an uncertain place and that there's a lot that's going on that is hard for most people to make sense of. And uncertainty in nature for most animals is threatening. Uh, if you're any kind of species and you're, you're, you don't really know what's in your environment, your, your threat of predation is enormously high. So animals have basically evolved uh, emotions, which are these motivating states to get them to sort of reconcile or make sense of this uncertainty or to move away from the uncertainty. Um, and so when we to think about emotions as primal is because these are the motivating structures that animate both our behaviors and our efforts at cognition and understanding here. And the emotions that we are really concerned with, I think, animate a lot of magical thinking and a lot of our intuitive judgments really are emotions of anxiety and apprehension. Um, these are what prompt us to sort of try to find solutions. And I think the most important thing that we came to realize in doing this research was that when we are in a state of anxiety, when we are facing uncertain information that's out there, what we are primarily motivated to do is to relieve that uncertainty. And so we are not necessarily, when we're in an anxious state, looking for the best information. We're looking for the most expedient explanation, something that will reduce our emotional tension as quickly as possible. And so when it comes to things like, for example, conspiracy theories, one thing that conspiracy theories do is that they provide plausible explanations that serve in the short term, at least, to kind of reduce the acute anxiety that comes from some uncertain situation, albeit watching the World Trade Center fall or seeing jets, you know, with these streams up in the sky or any number of things. Now, now the, the um, conspiracy theorist uh, probably describes him or herself as uh, rational in, in how they think about the world. But, but you divide uh, the world into two, two groups, in, intuitionists and, and rationalists. Uh, related to the uh, uh, some of these ideas that you've already started talking about. In simple terms, what does it mean to fall into each of these camps? And and then, you know, briefly, how do you go about trying to measure this? Because um, this is so caught up and entangled with so many other related ideas. Uh, how do you untangle this this complexity? What we ended up making the central argument of the book is that American politics is not simply organized by partisanship or by ideology or even by race. It's also organized by what we would call worldview. And we would characterize this dimension of worldview that on one end are people we would call rationalists. And these are people who have a, an enlightenment style way of understanding the world. They rely on logic and deduction and facts and empirical observation. On the other end of the spectrum are people we call intuitionists. And intuitionists are people 
who draw on their intuitions for making sense of the world. They tend to draw heavily upon emotional cues. So for example, if they're feeling afraid, they look for threats out in their environment. Um, they rely heavily upon heuristics, these kind of innate information shortcuts. Um, so that makes them particularly susceptible to certain kinds of symbols and metaphors. Now, these are kind of stylized archetypes. They're not really discrete categories. Most people employ both a combination of rationalistic tendencies and intuitions in the course of their daily lives. But what we discovered is that how much one relies on one more than the other, where one locates oneself on the spectrum, can actually predict an enormous amount about their political views and their social views. Now, the question for us was, how do we measure where people are on this intuitionist framework? And what we wanted to do with com was come up with measures that didn't reference particular belief systems, because one of our arguments was that a lot we're all born as strong intuitionists, and basically we get trained in more rationalist ways of thinking through our education. Some people, however, are caught up within particular belief systems that re-emphasize or strongly emphasize a more intuitive way of understanding the world. So, for example, a lot of fundamentalist religions really, really work to kind of reinforce these intuitionist proclivities. So how can we then measure how much someone is relying on their intuitions when making judgments without making reference to particular beliefs or belief elements? And so we came up with the following strategy, one of which was we wanted to measure how kind of chronically apprehensive people were. Were they exhibiting a lot of chronic behaviors? Now, the, the difficulty was how you do this within a particular survey. So we started asking people to estimate the frequency which, which they did kinds of what we would call apprehensive behaviors, like checking the locks on their doors and windows or shredding bills before uh, they throw them away or worrying about whether or not they're going to get cancer. Um, as a So that became one sort of battery of, of items. A second battery of items... That, really relied on pessimism. And so how pessimistic were people about the future? Whether they think the likelihood of a recession in the coming year or a war with Russia or an Ebola disease outbreak, for example. And these questions together really tried to differentiate people by what state of kind of chronic anxiety or apprehension they might be in. There was also then we wanted to measure their willingness or susceptibility uh, to certain kinds of heuristics. And the heuristics we were most interested in are what are called representativeness heuristics, to what extent we think that something that looks like, looks like another object has its essential characteristics. So, for example, a voodoo doll is a representativeness heuristic of the person that you might want to hurt by you know, sticking pens in the doll. And then a contagion heuristic is another important one where we think that, you know, if we've been in contact with things that are holy or tainted, that we somehow or another get infused with the essence of that. So we tried to come up with a scale to see how much people evaluated these heuristics in making decisions. And we asked them a series of paired choices. So we said things like, would you rather stab a photograph of your family five times with a sharp knife or stick your hand in a bowl of cockroaches? Or would you rather sleep in laundry pajamas once worn by Charles Manson or pick a nickel off the ground and put it in your mouth. And what we're doing with these types of questions is we're basically trying to give people a choice between what would be a tangible cost, i.e. the hands in the cockroaches or the nickel on the ground, versus a symbolic cost, which is stabbing a photograph or wearing the pajamas that once weren't, you know, belong to an evil person. And so we have a series of questions like that. And we basically 
put this together with the apprehension and pessimism scales, and we create what we call an intuitionism scale here. Um, what we find is on the intuitionism scale, we, we get a, a really nice kind of normal distribution here. And where someone is on the intuitionism scale is highly predictive of whether or not they have supernatural beliefs, whether or not they have fundamentalist beliefs, whether or not they have paranormal beliefs. Uh, our intuitionists also do not really embrace science that strongly. They're, you know, they're much more likely to say things like, for example, plants and trees can sense our feelings. Um, they think that, you know, humans and dinosaurs, they're more likely to think that humans and dinosaurs coexisted. They're less likely to believe in evolution, which is kind of a strongly counterintuitive notion. Um, and so we were pretty confident that, well, at least with these items, as unusual as they were, they were capturing this tendency in the population to rely on intuitions more than on rationality. Now, um, and I, and I can say, uh, I, I took this, these quizzes, uh, with my wife and, and I got stuck wearing Charles Manson's clean pajamas at the end of it. So, uh, we, we sorted ourselves in a certain kind of way. I won't tell you exactly where I fell on the continuum, but if you believe this way that you've measured this, and it's really, really interesting and worth reading about what makes this, um, even more interesting is, is how this relates to um, understanding important phenomena, po political phenomena of the day, like populism. You referenced this earlier. Uh, and I wonder if you could uh, draw this connection uh, between uh, populism, uh, though, though uh, a concept that means different things to different people, um, but, but how uh, intuition and where you fall on this intuition scale might be related to something uh, like a political ideology, like, like populism or to supporting a political candidate. Sure. So we were in the course of doing research on this uh, and the election started taking place. And so in the spring of 2016, we implemented one of our surveys with the battery of questions. And we were asking people during the primaries to evaluate, uh, you know, indicate who they were supporting in the various primaries. Um, at the same time I was doing this, I was doing some research with Wendy Ron at the University of Minnesota, and she and I were interested in populism. And what we had come to realize is that populism was a term that gets thrown about. It has lots and lots of different meanings. And we would characterize populism as having three distinct elements. There is a political populism, and that's the idea that the political system doesn't represent ordinary people. So we had questions like, you know, it doesn't matter who you vote for because the rich control both parties or, you know, the political system is unresponsive to the concerns of ordinary Americans, these types of things. There is a cultural populism, which is a, a mistrust of any kind of elite, whether it's a scientific elite or a cultural elite. Um, and then a strong nationalism, this idea of connecting with the people. Because, you know, what populism really is, is about saying, you know, there's some nefarious elite out there that's undermining the rightful sovereignty of the people. And then how you, of course, define the people uh, is, is subjective. So we were trying to come up with a measure of populism that captured all of these distinct elements. And so when we implement these questions, a couple of th interesting things that came out, um, during the election, for example, you know, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump during the primaries were labeled as populist candidates. But if you look at their various supporters, you see a big marked difference. Bernie Sanders supporters and Donald Trump supporters both scored high on political populism. They both thought that the political system was not representing the ordinary interest, but they diverged wild, wildly on cultural populism and, national po and nationalism. So Bernie Sanders supporters were not strong cultural populists. They, they like experts. They like elites. Um, and they're not really strong nationalists. Donald Trump supporters, on the other hand, were both 
very, very suspicious of cultural elites and strongly nationalistic. And the only other candidate where you saw all three of these dimensions lining up was Ben Carson. And so these are our two real strong populists in the race. So we took this metric of populism and we're, we have in the book, we describe how it sort of differentiates these various candidates in ways that uh, with the exception of Bernie Sanders not really being a populist, he's really more of a socialist. And, you know, his supporters kind of, at least in their reflection of these ideas, I think, reflect that. Um, but if you look at where they are in their intuitionism scores, it's just this incredibly strong linear relationship. So that the higher one is in one's populism, the much more likely, this sort of combined populism of all three of these elements, the much higher one scores on an intuitionism scale. And what we ended up arguing in the book is a lot of Donald Trump's appeal is rooted in his intuitionist orientation. You know, he is ideologically very hard to pin down, although as president, he's been behaving in a very conservative way to his face. You know, as a candidate in particular, he was all over the place. And, you know, there's a lot of mistrust about conservatives that he wasn't really a true conservative. Um, and, he, you know, he didn't seem to ex exhibit any strong moral or political convention, convictions. And, you know, one of the big mysteries was why he continues to, you know, attract such strong support, particularly from fundamentalist Christians, given that he would seem to violate so many basic tenets of Christianity. And our argument is that in speaking, his, what his populist rhetoric does and his whole really approach to explaining politics is a strongly intuitive one. And if you look at Donald Trump, he is the epitome of intuitionism. He's a germ phobe. He, you know, he makes quick generalizations. He, he, he actually says himself, I go with my gut instinct. I always you know, trust my gut. I trust my instincts. Um, he was a big early follower of Norman Vincent Peale, you know, the power of positive thinking. He's a big magical thinker. And in this way, he speaks to an intuitionist orientation towards, towards the world. And I think that is why, you know, despite all of his moral handicaps, he is able to relate or has such a strong appeal amongst groups that would otherwise we would think would reject him is because fundamentalist Christians themselves also have a very strong intuitionist orientation. Now, your them. suggestion in, in drawing these connections is that um, by thinking about politics in this way, uh, we can help to understand some important divisions in the United States. Now, what, what, it, what struck me is, is sort of the historical part of this. Why now? Uh, why hasn't this this division arisen in the past? If this is deeply embedded in our in our emotions and in our intuitions and in how we uh, view the world, uh, why haven't these um, these these divisions that you found you found uh, arisen at an earlier point, or or maybe they have and we just just haven't seen them? So I wonder if you could sort of place this in in sort of time a bit. Sure. Um it's possible that there are other intuitionist political movements that have arisen. My knowledge of history is not sufficient, um, say, prior to the 1930s to be able to speak to that. And our data are limited. But one of the things that we noticed in the book is that, I mean, we, we would posit that the intuitionism scale is, is orthogonal to ideology. And there are plenty of intuitionists on the left as well as on the right. And there are rationalist conservatives as well as rationalist liberals. What we think, though, has happened over the past 40 years, particularly with the rise of movement conservatism, is that conservatism has become much more intuitionist in its orientation. And a lot of this has to do with the deliberate effort to bring fundamentalists within the political right. Um, and uh, 
If you go back and, and look at data, for example, in the late 1950s and in the early 1960s, most Americans believed in science and most Americans believed in God. And there was this kind of consensus around this. And what we've seen is a polarization on this uh, since this time. You know, so you have groups of Americans who you know, believe the rapture is imminent and deny climate change. And then you have on the other side, people who do not believe in God or don't want prayer in public schools, uh, but who proudly proclaim we believe in science. And we're, we're seeing this polarization. And then this polarization is actually occurring with it's correlating with with ideology. And so conservatives on our measures score much higher on, on an average on their intuitions and scores than liberals do. And much of this relates to the fact that um, I think there's two elements within conservatism, one of which is that a lot of conservatism now is heavily emphasizes moral traditionalism, which gets equated with Christian fundamentalism. Um, and conservatism itself, the rhetoric of conservatism has become a much more intuitionist rhetoric, particularly with Donald Trump. You know, our rationalist conservatives that are out there and, you know, the, the David Brookses and the George Wills, um, you know, the Charlie Sykeses, these folks are kind of in the wilderness right now. Um, and conservatism is, is much more animated by really strongly emotional and, cons- and symbolic concerns and much less about, you know, logical, deductive, factual types of concerns. Now, there's still a lot of intuitionism on the left. And I think where you find this mostly on the left is around issues, interestingly enough, of food and health. Um, so, you know, hostility or apprehension about vaccines, for example, or, you know, uh, our intuitionists, to give you some examples, really don't like GMOs. Um, they think GMOs are evil. They really don't know much about GMOs, but they just the unnaturalness of GMOs really strikes them the wrong way, and they they take that very seriously. Um, they don't like gluten, even though most of them really don't doesn't know what gluten does, and gluten is largely inert for most of them. Um, and you know, these are some places where you'll see intuitionism emerging on the left, but by and large, the left has become the, the ideology of the left is a, a much more rationalist orientation about you know logical solutions towards social problems and seeing government as part of that. Whereas on the right, you know, I think the ideological tenor of the right over the past 30 years, and it really, I think, traces back to the embrace in the late 1970s and early 1980s of the sort of Republican strategy of trying to bring in white Southern fundamentalist conservatives into the fold. And they've shifted their ideology in kind, and they've made it an ideology that is much more intuitionist. The, the book in again, uh, Enchanted America, How Intuition and Reason Divide Our Politics. Uh, the two authors, uh, Eric Oliver and Thomas J. Wood. Uh, the book is published by the University of Chicago Press. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, Hank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk and thank you for listening. <laughs>